Um, the text this morning is from John chapter 5. Don't, don't turn there because I'll read it and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Um, I'll spend more time in Philippians at the end. But the text is uh, John 5, verses 28 through 29, if you're taking notes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this, your, your morning in which you declared that your son was in fact your son, that he is who he said he was, and that he accomplished the things that he set out to do. Uh, this is his great vindication. And I pray this morning that in the face of our own lives, um, when it comes to our own crosses, when it comes to our own uh, self-righteousness, when it comes to ourself that uh, you would again vindicate him in our own eyes, uh, here and now. We, we pray that you would declare these things again to us because we need to hear them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I've, I've heard many, um, many Resurrection Sunday sermons. Uh, there are certain things I'm going to just assume. I, I, I am not here uh, this morning to reason with you. <laughs> I think we've heard a lot of, the, of those sermons, right? Did he actually... Did he actually come out of the grave? And I think a lot of resurrection sermons are about that, right? It, about proving that it happened. But it, it, it happened. I'm, I'm not going to make that argument. I'm assuming it. If you want to know more about that, I can tell you more about, about that, right? There, there were 500 people that saw him. All the disciples saw him. All the disciples were willing to die for it. Paul, who hated the church and persecuted it, really did become one of its biggest proponents, one of its biggest zealots. Uh, I, criminology is my background. The best book I've ever seen on this uh, was a cold case detective who set out to prove that it wasn't true, the Gospels, and became a Christian. Um, because of it, right, if it was in a court of law, <laughs> this criminologist would have been like, "Yeah, oh yeah, he was definitely uh, he was definitely resurrected." But but again, I'm not I'm not. This is not apologetics. This is not evangelistic. Even Paul said this in Acts. Chapter 17, or this is what it says of Paul in Acts chapter 17. Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This was his mission, right? He didn't go around preaching the law of Moses. He didn't go around preaching that you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow all these rules. He went around proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. How do we know? He came out of the grave. Roman, Christian, Jewish historians, right? There, there is no doubt about the fact that the grave was empty. None. And we're not going to talk anymore about that. What we're going to talk about is what does it mean? What does it mean that it was empty? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our hope is in this life, this life right now, we are to be pitied above everyone else. What does it mean that it was empty? It means that our hope is not in this world. It's not. So where is our hope? Right? That sounds like a hopeless message. 
right? Everything you look at, all your money, all, how beautiful you are, how beautiful you're not, how fit you are, how fit you're not, who your spouse is, who they're not. <laughs> none of that. That's none of your hope. That's not your hope. This is our hope right here. John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this. Don't marvel at it. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus' resurrection is the firstfruits. The firstfruits of what they call the final or universal resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is just the beginning. He's the first one. He came to defeat Satan and sin and death, and he truly will, and he will demonstrate it by calling us all, believer and unbeliever, from the grave to stand before him. First Corinthians fifteen twenty five through 26 For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Everyone. Right? I, I'm telling you here, he, he rose. And what does that mean? Paul says in Romans that it, it, what it means is that he, it's, it vindicated him. He was not lying. He was not kidding around. He really was who he said he was. And he's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. And what did he say he's going to do? That he's going to defeat death. It does not matter if you believe it. It does not matter if you put your hope in it. It does not matter if, what you think about it. You will come out of the grave. Well, well I don't understand. Why, why, do, why do people who hate him get... Get to come out of the, because he's going to show you. He's going to defeat death. He's going to show everyone. He really is the Lord of life and death. I don't think we, we, we stop and think about this for long enough, right? We tend to think of the resurrection. It's like, oh, good, I can't wait. My knee is going to stop hurting, and I won't have to see all those other people going to hell. There'll just be like this, you know, de-escalator that just takes them down somewhere. I don't know, whatever. They went down to the grave, and that's just the end of them. There will be a moment where every human being who ever lived, no matter what they think about it, will come out when he calls their name. Everyone. He really will defeat death. In Philippians it says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What's under the earth? And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's going to be, there we all will be. And some of us will be like, I knew it. (laughs) Amen, brother. And a whole bunch of people are going to be like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, yes. And it's going to be dismay like nothing we've ever seen. Shock like nothing we've ever seen. Nothing in this world can compare to the shock that a lot of people are going to have on Resurrection Day. But they're all going to know. And, you know, no matter what they tried to believe, no matter what arguments they tried to, right, no matter how much they believed in Bernie Sanders to be the the one that was going to save them, they're going to find out that the real Lord is Jesus Christ. Oh, it turns out it wasn't you. Yeah, you have a Lord, and his name is Jesus, and it was true. 
Everyone who loved or hated, served or rebelled, believed or reviled will look upon him and know him and bow before him. His resurrection is the validation, the vindication of everything that he did and everything that he said, everything he commands and everything he expects from us. Should he be obeyed? Do you know anybody else who came out of the ground? Should he be obeyed? Do you know anybody else who died, was buried, and came back? What does that make him? Who does that make him to be? Right? This was the argument that got him killed in the first place. And they were like, he's not my Lord. Put him to death. What do you say when he comes out of the ground? Except, I'm going to do whatever you want. Take me with you. You, Right? What am I going to do? You've got the power of life and death. C.S. Lewis wrote a little sermon. If you've never read it, you should read it. If you haven't memorized it, you should memorize it. (laughs) It's called The Weight of Glory. And he, he says this. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us either with one expression or the other either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured. After he defeats death, all disbelief will cease. Right? Have you ever thought about that? There will be no more unbelief. Just like there will be no more death. No one will, no one will be able to deny it when they're standing there in their flesh looking upon him. There, there's, at that point, right? there's no philosophy There's no art, there's no politics that's going to protect you from realizing the fact, believing that he is who he says he is. But at that point, what's, right? At that point, if you didn't believe all along, and you come to believe only at the end after you're resurrected, is it too late? Is it too late? Is it too late for all those people out there who on that day, all their disbelief finally will go away and... Now, this whole thing, right? Wait, wait, this is Resurrection Day. I thought we were just going to talk about, like, the tomb was empty and Jesus is the man. And No, we're going to go beyond that. Because the resurrection isn't just this thing that happens at the end. That's called eschatology. There's this end times, right? And it's very, like, confusing. And when is it going to happen? And I don't know, is there a millennium or not? Or am I going to be, like, sucked up like a vacuum cleaner or something, like with the rapture? I don't know. There is an eschatology, but there's two eschatologies, actually. There's the eschatology, which is the end of all things, which, I mean, is a mystery. There's, there are some things I can say about it, but I'm not going to waste your time because most of what I would say about it wouldn't make much sense. But there's another eschatology. Right? We have no idea when the real end is going to be, but your doctor, your doctor and a good life insurance agent could, can give you a reasonable indication of when the end of your life is going to be. So, okay, set aside eschatology in the big picture sense for a moment. Let's just talk about your end times. Right? I, I can predict that reasonably. Within 50 years, 60 years, unless you're a child in this room, the eschaton will have arrived. It's, I mean, it's that imminent. This is why people get so confused eschatology in the Gospels, when, when it seems like it's so imminent and everyone's a little nervous and it's coming and it seems like it's right around the corner, it is because you don't live that long, right? 
People think like, oh, well, the end must be at right around the corner, and, and the end of all things must be right around the corner, and it's very confusing to people, but that's not what they're talking about. Your end is right around the corner. It's coming. Listen, you can almost hear it creeping up on you. Happy Easter Day. <laughs> what are you, you going to do, right? This is, it's coming. It's coming. C.S. Lewis, again, from Way to Glory. Now, this is a little longer quote than I normally read, but bear with me. Okay, I took acting classes, so I should be able to give it the proper inflection. When any man comes into the presence of God, he will find, whether he wishes it or not, that all those things which seem to make him so different from the men of other times, or even of his earlier self, have fallen away. He is back where he always was, where every man always is. Do not let us deceive ourselves. Do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There is no copse, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. It will happen to all of us in the blink of an eye, in a breath, in a time too small to be measured at any time and at any place. All that seems to divide you from God and from other men will flee away. Vanish, leaving you naked before him like the first man, like the only man. As if nothing but he and you existed. And since that contact cannot be avoided, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life is to learn to love it. That, that is the first and greatest commandment. The business of life is to learn to love it. Now, how many of you love it? Right? I'll, I'll lead. I don't. That, that thought that he's just there? Like, always? All the time? I don't train myself to think that way. I like the idea of eschatology where it's like, yeah, sometime in the far distant future, you'll look at me face-to-face. And I'm sure by then, he'll teach me to love it. But no, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. At the end? No. Now. Right now. Right now. Everything you do, everything you say is before his gaze. Do you love it? Why not? Why not? Are you afraid of it? Are you ashamed? Right? Maybe we're not who we think we are. Do not be deceived. Right? We love the idea <laughs> right, of no more back pain. I can't wait to not be fat. It's going to be wonderful. You know how much time I have to spend trimming this beard? In heaven, I won't have to worry about those things. Please, just bring it. Right? It's, I've said it a, a hundred times, probably my favorite blues song. 
Heaven is this place where the handouts grow on trees and you never have to change your socks. And the whiskey flows from a little stream off the rocks. <laughs> right? This is this picture of heaven that just, man, like a hobo. I just, I can't wait. But, but see, at the end, what will happen is that the veil that you think is so thick, all those things that, think, that separate you, which we kind of like because it's safer that way and it's, it's more comfortable. That gaze is just a little too much, right? Think Whenever you start to think about his gaze, it makes you a little squirmy, doesn't it? So we like these things that sort of kind of keep it at a distance, but all of that is going away in a flash. And you'll know at that moment whether you really liked it all along or not. Think about that. It's not learning to love it in the future. It's learning to love it now because it's happening now. All of our moral choices, all of them, obedience, sinning, repenting, refusing to repent, self-justifying, they are a matter of loving God or not. Right? Because the rules, the law, is not a list of impersonal, right? It's not just this list. We like to think of it as accounting. Move this one over here, right? I got all these, get all my paper clips in order. I got this whole list. Look at all these things I've done. Oh, no, look at all these, this list of things I haven't done. And what we do is we get, we, right? We don't want to think about the gaze. We just want to think about this list. Am I doing it or am I not? Am I doing it or am I not? Am I doing it or am I not? And you're just running down the road. You're on that treadmill, thinking you're going somewhere, but you're not going anywhere. God is love, and what is fulfilling the law? Love. So obeying laws is about loving him. This is When you lie, you're not loving Jesus. When you tell the truth, you're loving Jesus. It's, there's a person behind it, and he's standing there, right, and you're right before his gaze, and you're either deciding to love him or not love him. That's what morality and ethics is about, loving him or not loving him. Right? When you steal something, are you, who are you offending? The AMPM, right? If you're a nine-year-old kid and you steal a candy bar, right, what is really going on? Okay, well, there is a guy who owns the store. You've got parents. There's all these things, right? And what we have, that's, that's all these layers we put between us and the gaze, we, when you get to be more grown up and you, you know more sophisticated stealing like tax evasion, <laughs> right? There's the IRS and the government and there's all these different things, these layers. But what right before his face, you're saying, "I would rather steal. I don't love you." That's what our moral choices are about. And so, what you're doing every day is deciding to love him or not love him. At the end of the process, right, these everyday choices, these everyday choices to the left or to the right, love or not, what we'll see at the last day, at the resurrection, was that we were walking a path that started many, many years ago, and, and all we're doing is arriving at a destination. You, hell is a choice in a long line of decisions. Heaven is a choice in a long line of decisions. Because what's eternal life? It says in John, knowing him. Well, I thought eternal life had something to do with my body living forever and 
metaphysics, right? Biology. Wait, eternal life is knowing him. Obeying the law is loving him. Are you making choices for that? Or are you making choices away from his gaze, away from knowing him, and unloving towards him? He's the light of the world. Are you going towards the light? If you're not going towards the light, you're going towards the what? Darkness. Why do they call hell the outer darkness? Right? Why does he talk about your moral decisions being darkness? Because what you're doing is you're deciding for darkness. And he, when, here's all these people walking up to him at the very end, and he's like, oh, you, yeah, the way you've been going is right here to dark, the outer darkness. Welcome. Right? You didn't want me all that time. I'm not going to force you. The darkness was what you wanted. There you go. C.S. Lewis again. In some sense, as dark to the intellect as it is unendurable to the feelings, we can, uh, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. Think about what he says. Think about what he says. If we deny him, what is he going to do? Deny us. If we choose darkness, what, what is the end result? The outer darkness. Do you want to be known by him? Day after day, after day, after day, after day, you choose to ignore him and his word, and that is a path that you are choosing that leads directly to the outer darkness. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something. Into something a little different from what it was yesterday. All your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to the one state or the other. That's C.S. Lewis again. Now, for once, I'm going to critique C.S. Lewis. Because you're not turning yourself into anything. When you are born, you are a hellish, sad, pathetic, hell-bent little creature. And unless somebody intervenes, that long path of darkness is set for you. But if he comes and intercedes and he says, no, 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 no. Not your will, my will. Not your righteousness, my righteousness. Not your life, my life. And he directs you now to this new path. And at that point, you're deciding to go along Right? Yes, officer, I'll come along. Or you're like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good. We love the idea that you make this choice at the beginning, and then when you're old and, and you're about to die or something terrible is about to happen, you're just like, yes. Right? Suddenly we're all very spiritual right when some danger is right around the corner. But what about all that stuff in between? What were you choosing? Think about it. In Matthew, all those people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, who calls him Lord? Who calls him Lord? And what they want is an accounting. They're like, hey, remember when I did prophesy in your name? Remember when I was giving like water to thirsty people? 
They want an accounting, he'll give them an accounting. He says, I don't know you. I don't know you. All along, it wasn't about knowing me. This is what he's going to say all along. If you want an accounting, he'll give you an accounting. Oh, remember this and this and this? You want to get into a list of stuff you did and didn't do? Cool, let's do it. And look at all the choices you made, and I don't know you. And so, I won't ever know you again. You're here in the outer darkness, where my existence, you cannot feel. My knowledge does not go there. It's apart from me. Now, this is what I love. Remember that same time, right? Where these people are like, Lord, Lord. He turns to this other group, and he's telling this other group what they did. Because what they did mattered. And they are all very confused. They're like, when did we do those things? Because what was their focus on the whole time? Do you remember the story? It's in Matthew. And there's these two groups. And the one's like, when did we give water to thirsty people? It's all the same stuff the other group was bragging about. What gives? Uh, these people weren't focused on works righteousness. These people were. Were they doing the same things? <laughs> Let me tell you, that makes me nervous. I'll be honest, that makes me nervous. Right? I preach all the time. There's another preacher. How do I know? Well, I did all this. Right? If I get there at the end, I'm like, well... <laughs> I brought files. Look at all these sermons I preached. Right? Look, I got books. I highlight in them because I can show you now. See, I read that. Calvin, done, baby. Look at all the stuff I did. Oh, you want an accounting? Oh, we're doing math now. Oh, 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 okay. Well, here, you come over to this side over here. That's bad. That is bad. Right, This other sheepish side over here, kind of hanging back a little bit, their eyes down to the ground, not really sure what to do. Where do I put my hands? There he is. I knew, I was, I knew this was going to happen. He's right there. And he comes warmly over to them, and he's thanking them for all the things that they did. And they're like, right? Because all along for that one group, what was it about? Him. It was always about him. Over here, it's about accounting. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. I, I don't apologize for the people who have heard me talk about this particular set of verses probably 50 times because it's okay. There's no end to how much we can learn about these things. But listen to this from Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In what age? Godly lives when? In the future? No, now, now. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, here's a test. What's training them? What's training them to be godly? Grace. What grace? The grace that appeared bringing salvation. So what's training? Right? I I don't just sit around my house and by osmosis get thinner. I I really wish that was the way it happened. But it doesn't. What's training mean? Oh, you mean I've got to do (laughs) push-ups? I've got to run? 
I've got to like, you know, do stuff. And then all of a sudden we get into some weird ground. Oh, okay, so I do a bunch of stuff. Okay, I'm trained by grace. I'm a good soldier. Watch me work. I can't wait for the accounting because it's going to go so well for me. And even in this passage, we get very confused. This is why Paul puts the two things that are full of tension, he puts them together beautifully. You're on a training program. He brings the circumstance. Here's another person. They come into your life, and they treat you like garbage, and they stab you in the back, and they leave you in a gutter to die. Now, do you love God or not? Do you trust him or not? Is it about him or you? Oh, you have a bunch of kids, and you have another one coming. Holy moly. Is it about you or him? He's training you. He's training you. And then just when you think, okay, cool, I am down with this program, I'm going to be like the best. It says at the very end, who is it that purifies you? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who does it? Who does the work? Show me your faith and I'll show you my works. His name's Jesus. Now, what you have to understand, though, is that he doesn't just do it by feeling good about you. (laughs) He doesn't fit you for heaven by just having nice thoughts about you. He fits you for heaven by coming into your life like the 82nd Airborne and messing around with the, the landscape. Well, I was hiding in the bushes and he found me. (laughs) right? I had a huge bunker and I thought I was safe and comfortable down here. And let me tell you, he blew that bunker to pieces. And so you're training. Okay. You're training to fight, right? And who did Jacob wrestle? God. (laughs) So who's wrestling you? God. And what is he fitting you to do? Right? He's strengthening you through this struggle in order to be fit for heaven. Because on the last day, the long path that you've been on is going to be revealed and the destination lies before you. And it was him who does it. He purifies you. He makes you zealous. And how does he do it? Grace. Oh, okay, grace then is like a free thing that I just... I mean, go back to it again, right? Grace is just this thing, like a birthday present? You open it up? Uh, No, no. Grace is like two-a-days, I don't know if you ever played football, but two-a-days, back even in my day, it's illegal now. I'd probably go to prison. But they had this thing at the, at the end of the second practice where you had to run until you either threw up or passed out. I generally threw up and then passed out. <laughs> That's training. That's what grace does. You or him, his way or your way. His righteousness or your righteousness? And you're like, I'm either going to throw up or I'm going to pass out. Now, First Kings chapter 6, verse 7. Now, this is going to be, just bear with me for a moment. Bear with me. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. So in Jerusalem, when they're building a temple, right? it's not like here when they're building an apartment building down the street and it's like all you can hear for months. They're building this beautiful temple, huge, massive temple. 
And what do you hear? A chisel? No. Hammers? Jackhammers? No. Why? Because all that rough work was done down at the quarry. Huh. Ephesians. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, he doesn't go and dig you out of the ground at the end and start to go to work with you on a chisel, with a chisel and a hammer. He calls you forth out of the tomb, and you know what you are? You're finished. You're complete. In heaven, nobody hears a chisel. Nobody hears a hammer. Nobody hears a jackhammer. In heaven, the living stones who were chiseled down here on earth have been prepared, and they are ready. He's fitting you for heaven now. You're like, well, isn't there an easier way? (laughs) Uh, No. Happy Easter. Right? Happy Easter. Here we are with the empty tomb. What happened on Friday? Right? We love Easter, but there's oh, this is the tension. What happened on Friday? Now, it would be a lot, I think, easier for us if you made one of those awful buildings where they just took the rocks and kind of... Have you ever seen one of those rock buildings that looks like it's always going to fall down because they just take the rocks naturally and don't do anything to them? Have you ever seen this? There's a structure like this at St. Edward's Park. And I'm always like, kids, don't go too close. Because that thing looks like it's going to fall down. It's amazing. I mean, 900 years ago, they built a giant church in Paris. And it burned for how many hours? How hot did it get in there? It's like a Dutch oven. In the roof, which everyone needs to hold their horses with the tragedy here. Because the roof, which was built in the 18th century, not that old burned down. It was time they had a new one anyway. But there the structure lies. Why? Because back then, they used to build things a little differently than they build them now. <laughs> right? How long do you think it would take this building to burn down? That's a joke. Don't burn it. Don't, don't, don't try to... <laughs> See, he's training you by grace. You think the hammer and chisel, you think the tongs and hammer, right? He sticks you down into the fire and he pulls you out. Switching the metaphor here, forget the mason. Now we've got a smith. Have you ever seen how a smith makes things? They get them real hot so that it expands and it becomes like almost deformed. Ow, my back. And then, and then they put it on something hard and hit it with something else that's hard. And then what does it become? A beautiful gate, right? A beautiful door knocker. At this point, an entire car. <laughs> so what we want is, is, is not that. And so we make choices, what? To avoid the gaze, to avoid the hammer and tongs. I'm not going to open the Bible. I feel bad every time I do. <laughs> I have actually thought that before. I thought, man, this Bible reading is getting me down. I suck. Oh, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that Jesus died for those things. He doesn't suck. Right? And in our flippant age, we don't like uncomfort. We don't like to feel bad. And he's like, hammer and tongs, baby. I'm fitting you for heaven. I'm fitting you for a structure that I'm building that will not ever fall down. No amount of fire can do anything to it because it's already been in the crucible. The crucible is here. The quarry is here. The grace that's training us is here. And, 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 and deciding to go to run towards that is, is the way to heaven. Running away from it is not. It's, it, it's the way to hell. Gehenna was this trash heap they had outside of Jerusalem. And it was what they first, the Christians first referred to as hell was this trash heap. Now, trash, do you have to fit trash together? Or you just got to throw the trash there and it just sort of makes a pile? Right? Think of all the sloppy, unformed people in this world who, who grace has not intervened in their life, right? And, and, and in the end, they're going to go to the trash heap and it doesn't matter what shape they're in. But you look back at their life and you're like, man, nobody ever went to work on them with hammer and tongs. Nobody ever purified them with fire. Nobody ever chiseled away them. Yeah, and then you just see this smelly trash heap. Well, you won't even be able to see it. God wouldn't do that to you. He wouldn't take you to heaven and make you a beautiful palace where there's a trash heap right there. I like C.S. Lewis' other book. The trash heap, right, hell is just a crack in the sidewalk of heaven. And when they go down to hell, it's this place that just goes on, like it makes space here look like a living room. And, and then in the end, it turns out it's just this little crack down in hell because you could fit them all down there because they're not much. Now, people, this is how, I'm not going to say I'm going to finish now and then keep saying it 10 more times. This is the close. Many of us are uncomfortable with the idea of rewards. Is God working on all of us at the same, right? Is he hitting you as hard with the hammer and tongs as he's hitting somebody else with the hammer and tongs? When we get to heaven, we're not all going to be the same size stone, right? I love when people say, oh, I can't wait to talk to Peter. It's going to be great. Like, you guys are equals. When you get to heaven, it's going to be more like this. You see that mountain range? Yeah, that's Peter. He's been here a while. His glory is massive, right? It's a metaphor. He's not going to be a mountain. Don't get me wrong. But, like, you're just, you can't even handle talking to him yet. Like, the sound of his voice will crush you. He's been here a while. He's very glorious. You just arrived. Chill out. Imagine an infinite ocean of liquid light. And and you get there, and you're a five-gallon bucket. And floating all around you there, there's, there's thimbles. There's swimming pool size, right? There's something the size of the Pacific Ocean. It's probably Paul. Now, are all these vessels, there's no seepage, there's no leakage. They're filled from this liquefied light. And they're all as full as they could possibly be. At that point, you're as full as you could possibly be. Are you going to be looking over at the 50-gallon drum thinking, I could have had so much more? Right, And if it's an infinite ocean of liquid light, the size of a swimming pool and the size of a five-gallon bucket, right? does the swimming pool have anything to boast in? You are being fitted for heaven. 
right? And you go to Notre Dame, there are, there's the stained glass, everybody loves it, but you know, deep down inside, there's huge, huge stones that the whole thing's resting on. They're not less glorious than the stained glass. You go to heaven, you're not going to envy the guy who's a 50-gallon drum where you're a five-gallon bucket or a thimble because you're all going to be filled with glorious light. In the book of Philippians, this is what Paul is talking about. Okay, now everything that I've said, listen to it again. Listen to this again. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. Paul's not perfect. No one's going to be perfect. But I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to make the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He counted everything else as loss. He's not perfect, but he's not looking back. Because where? Where is his eyes? He's, right? He knows whose gaze he stands before, and he never looks away. He says he's not perfect, but I mean, come on. It's hard to imagine, compared to me, compared to most people I know. When did that guy ever look away? Imitate him. Imitate people who live that way. You stand before the gaze of God now. And if you don't learn to love it, if you don't learn to love it, when he calls you forth, that upward call, you come out of the tomb. If you haven't been living in the power of resurrection, you're not going to be able to handle the gaze. It will be terror and guilt and shame, and you'll just be like, take me to the outer darkness I can't take anymore. Right? And, and many of us think that we love the gaze. But again, stop and think about it for a moment. Think. He's staring at you right now. Do you like that feeling? Why not? The power of the resurrection. This is how Paul lived. He lived in it. How, what am I going to do? I didn't do what's right. Don't look back. Look forward. Jesus covers it. Here's a sin that lies before me. Jesus lies to the right. Myself lies to the left. I go left. Oh, I'm not going to look back. I'm going towards Jesus. He's the point. Knowing him, loving him, pursuing him. When you, what, what you will find in the end is that you will be with him forever. Right? He's chosen you. Have you chosen him? He, he won't force you. It's a choice. You choose him or you don't. You go towards him or you don't. You love the gaze or you don't. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the tomb was empty. What does that mean? That means that we have to live in that resurrection power. That means what's coming is another resurrection, and that resurrection is your resurrection. Don't wait for that day to bow the knee. Don't wait for that day to call him Lord. Don't wait for that day, right? And please, please don't go with a list. Please don't go with a list. Burn the list. Bury the list. Have this one name on your lips, Jesus. I've come for Jesus. I come here because of Jesus. I've come to see Jesus, to live with Jesus, to be with him forever. That's eternal life. He came. He overcame Satan and sin and death so that every day, every day, you might have the power to overcome everything 
all the veils, all the things that stand between you and him, all the things that hold you back, all the things between you and his gaze, he came to tear it all down and burn it all down and get rid of it all so that it's just you and him. That's what he's here offering, you and him. He chose you. He wants you. Do you want him? Jesus, we thank you for the for your vindication. We thank you that you came, Lord God, that you revealed the triune God to all of us. You are not the God who stays high and lofty and far away. You are a God who comes, and may, and may you come to each of us now, and may we receive you, may we glorify you. Father God, may we, we, we turn from all of the things in this world, all of the pain, all of the shame, all of the self, may we turn to your Son. May he be our light, may he be our life, may he be our joy, and may we avail ourselves of him, Lord God, not just this morning, Not just this morning, Lord God. Let the resurrection life be our life today and tomorrow and every day hence. And amen.